Good morning. Um, our scripture reading for this morning is Acts 23:12-35. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you are going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. And the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they are going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. Be not persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called to two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued them, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you why they, what they have against them, him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, and on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Sicilia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Well, good morning. I'm going to try that again. Good morning. It's good to be together. Um, if you haven't already, turn to Acts 23. We're going to be sitting in Acts 23 together. And as we do so, let me pray for us. God, we draw near to you and we cling to the promise that as we do, you will draw near to us. You said that you would do so. We submit ourselves to your word. We turn to you, Lord. We pray that you would give us what we don't have. That you would show us what we do not see. That you would teach us what we do not know. 
and make us what we are not. For our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So every story has an author. Every word on each page, every image, every sequence is crafted by an author who sits above and outside of the story and has complete control over each moment, each character, shaping each character through the rise and fall, the conflict, the climax, the resolution. And in a few flicks of a pen, he can change the course of a story to the end that he desires. When we look out on the story in which we reside, it's easy for us to see only sin, only conflict, only brokenness and tragedy, and we're left feeling apathetic and alone because we see it through the lens of our own making. It's natural to consider that the story in which we reside doesn't have an author, And it's entirely up to us to reach the end. Even in Christ, though we believe that God is God, we often functionally believe that he isn't. We filter our past through our own shame. We filter our present through our own weakness. And we filter our future through the volatility of the world around us and the fickleness of our hidden heart. And thus we live with anxiety temperamental hope, and befuddled frustration. Consider what it's like for you to watch the news. Or consider what it's like for you to look at your newborn child with all her need and vulnerability entirely dependent on you. Or your 15-year-old son who's going through all sorts of different things and looking to you for guidance. Consider when you look at the state of your marriage or your parenting or the fickleness of your body. Do you fret? Do you wring your hands wondering whether you and your family will be okay, whether the church will be okay in the face of opposition? Do you feel a pressure that makes your knees weak and trembling or despair that things could ever change? Take heart. You are not the author of your life. You're not even the main character. And that is good news because we have an author of history who is able, willing, and good to those who trust him. He's always at work, often in ways that we can't see, bringing to completion all of his promises. And that is what we see in Acts 23. So before we go to Acts 23, it's very important for us to see the backdrop, the backdrop of what Acts is all about. So turn to Acts 1. We're going to look at the very first verse of the book of Acts. Turn to Acts 1. And if you've been with us through the long trek through the book of Acts that started before I even got here, you will have heard some of what I'm about to say. The Apostle Luke is the author of Acts, the author of the Gospel of Luke, and he says this, in the first book, which he's saying, the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, 
the person that he's writing to, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So we see the gospel of Luke is what Jesus began to do and teach, which implies that here in the book of Acts and all through the history of the church, Jesus continues to do and teach by the power of the Holy Spirit in his church. Acts is about the living Jesus. It's not about the apostles. It's easy to think that they are the main characters through the book of Acts because they're the ones that are talking. They're the ones that are facing the things that they're facing. And yet it's about Jesus and his witnesses and the spread of the church. And yet all throughout the book of Acts, we see opposition. We see hindrances upon hindrances to the fulfillment of this mission of the living Jesus through his church to bring good news to the world. And yet despite opposition, the early church increases. It never stops growing and it never has stopped growing. And this is the rhythm of the story and this is the rhythm of really the redemptive story of God. There are promise, there's opposition, and there's spread of God's work. There's promise Opposition, spread of the gospel. Promise, opposition, spread of the gospel. That's the rhythm. And in Acts 23, we see a rerun of that very reality. Turn back to Acts 23 and look at the last verse that Benjamin preached on last week. Verse 11, Paul is uh, facing hostility in Jerusalem. The Jews are coming against him. The Romans are trying to figure things out. The Romans bring him into protective custody, take him prisoner. And we read in verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This story, Acts 23, 12 to 35, is a direct fulfillment of that promise. And we can't understand what's going on in this text without understanding it in light of verse 11. I'll be honest. I got to this text and I was reading it and it seems like this intermediate text. I'm like, well, there's a lot going on, but there's really not a whole lot going on. There's no teaching. There's no sermon. There's no signs and wonders. There's no spiritually oriented dialogue at all. No church planning. But God is at work. It's a story about the living Jesus who is at work to fulfill his promises, specifically to the Apostle Paul, no matter the opposition. It's easy to miss his activity here. It just looks like a human landscape. But he's working in power to keep his word, which he always does. And build his church. So we got three main things going on here. Jesus triumphs over religious hostility. Using political power of men. To accomplish his promise to Paul. Very straightforward what's going on. Jesus is at work to fulfill his promise. Read in verse 12. When it was day... The Jews made a plot 
and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Quite the dramatic shift in the story, right? Jesus promises, you must testify. The Jews promise, you must die. Or we will. More than 40 rogue Jews conspire in secret to manipulate the government in order to kill Paul, who they saw as an opposer to the Jews. They would ask to see Paul, then wait in the narrow streets of Jerusalem in the middle of the night while Paul is being transported, and they'd take him out. They were no longer just rioters, but a band of assassins, kamikaze religious radicals, ready to die for the honor of their law. And to them, this was not crazy. To us, we see that and we're like, whoa, that's a little bit much. That escalated quickly, like Benjamin said. It wasn't crazy to them. It was noble. It was right. It was true. It was the right thing to do, even as they had grown insane in the midst of it. This was not just a theological disagreement here. This was on the level of blasphemy. Paul was desecrating their view of God's plan for the world. Namely, that he would choose the people of Israel. Stop. They had become comfortable with their privileged position of religious power as his chosen people. God's gracious love boosted them up to think that they were somehow better than those outside, and they had interpreted their law through that lens of their own making and forgot that God's grace, which is inherently unmerited, had come to them. And there was nothing about them that was impressive, that warranted that grace. But God always meant for their privilege to spill over to the nations. That God's good blessing would flow through them, not just to them, to spread his kingdom throughout the whole earth. God was fulfilling his promises here in the Gospels, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the early church, a beautiful way. But the Jews were hardened of heart, eager to maintain their privilege and their rights as God's people, and were willing to break the law to honor it. How peculiar is that? That's what happens when you get wrapped up in pride. When the status quo is threatened, and that status quo is good for you, if we sit in a seat of honor, we often fight hard to keep that place. And so it is with the Jews. They opposed Paul and therefore opposed Jesus. These 40 Jews were threatening the promise that Jesus made in verse 11. We're gazing at a battle of the wills here. Jesus versus the Jews. This story is on a precipice in these first few verses. What's going to happen? Can God triumph over evil and carry out his purposes for Paul and his church? Is God out of control here? 
Do we ask questions of the opposition we face today? Similar questions to that. Personally, you might not be facing 40 angry Jews. Probably not. Ravenously hungry Jews at that. But we all face these questions when we're faced with evil in life. When we're faced with opposition. How is it that he could be working in the midst of our pain? How could he be working in the midst of the resistance we face in life, in loving our families, in the spread of the church, in the midst of loss, relational conflict, sickness, division in the body of Christ, which we have seen this year in an amazingly painful way, broadly, not so much here, We wonder, is is God at work? Can God redeem this? Can God change us? Take heart. We are not the author of our story. Take heart. In the opposition that you are facing, that we are facing, he's standing by you. As he was standing by Paul, he never left. Faithfully bringing about his good purposes in your life. He triumphs over religious hostility. We know that he's able to do that, for in the end, he puts the Jews to shame. He leaves them hungry. The story was on a precipice, and with a flick of the author's pen, it changes. And it was a very small flick, because it was Paul's nephew that hears about this plot and goes and tells Paul, and Paul tells the Roman centurion, and that centurion brings the nephew to Claudius. This nephew, we don't hear much about him. He's pretty insignificant, and yet God uses him in his story and in the fulfillment of his promises to Paul. Claudius was the Roman commander in Jerusalem. He's the police chief. And when Claudius hears about this plot to kill Paul, he pulls out all the stops. It is extravagant. Feels over the top. He calls for 470 Roman soldiers to transport Paul to Caesarea. That's about half of all the soldiers that he had at his command at the time. He calls them and says, take Paul to Caesarea. They go to Antipas. Most of them turned back at that point because they were safe enough at that point. And then they made their way to Caesarea. Caesarea was about um, the distance of here, from here to Baltimore. They're trekking through the night. Pretty long ways. All for Paul. You wonder, as a side note, what it must have been like to live in Antipas see all these soldiers. What is going on? Who is this person they're transporting? Must be important, right? Who's to say that God didn't move in people's hearts when they saw these things? This person must be important. Maybe I should listen to what I'm hearing about what he's saying. But Claudius here, he he goes all out. He's preparing for a full insurrection in response to 40 Jewish men vowing not to eat until they kill Paul. Why? 
because there was one primary goal of a Roman commander in that time, and that was maintaining peace and order. Really maintaining control over the people. Making sure everything was cool. And now there was a riot, a death threat, all on account of this Paul. Paul's causing turbulence. And yet he's also a Roman citizen, which means if he was harmed on Claudius's watch, Claudius would have to answer for it. And Claudius didn't want that. He even manipulates the story as he writes the letter to kind of subtly uh, minimize the fact that he had made the mistake and almost whipped Paul. He's very much in his own corner here. He does want Paul to get a fair trial, free from harm, but he also displays this measure of fear and, and control that leads him to these extravagant measures. Claudius is flexing his muscle, and so is the Lord. Rome, Claudius, these 470 soldiers are at the Lord's command. The Lord is delivering Paul from his accusers. The political situation may have been spiraling out of control for Claudius, but according to the Bible, the political landscape is never out of control. There will always be things to grieve over as we look out on the political landscape of our time. Always. But God is king. No matter how bad it gets, God is king. Take heart. And the nations are a footstool for Jesus. You ever just kick your feet up when you're lounging on a footstool? The nations are like that to Jesus. They are before him like ink on a page. And with a stroke of his pen, he can change history. And he can use the powers of men to do that. Even if we're persecuted, God is not out of control. He wasn't even out of control when Jesus was crucified. The most incredibly unjust act. He was working. He was fulfilling his promises. Even at the darkest day. And it isn't just national powers that are in his hands, but any and all powerful people in our lives. Each of them in his hand. Take heart. He may not use them how we expect, but in all things he's working for our good. It might be painful, but he's doing something in us, through us, if we will lean into him as we take heart in him. And not only is he able to use powerful people to accomplish his purposes, he's able to use even evil even hostility, the hostility of the Jews threatened the advance of Paul's ministry. But Jesus transforms their hostility into a means through which he would fulfill his promises. Talk about that for a, a reversal. The battle of the wills. He doesn't just triumph. He uses them to work out his purposes. For it was their hostility that was the precipitating factor that led Claudius to send Paul to Caesarea, which was one step closer to Rome. God's promise, clear fulfillment. 
He's able to transform opposition into agent. It's into an agent of favor. A tool in his hand to build up his people, to bring good news to dead people. Good news of life to a people in darkness. And in a few years, yes, Jesus would ultimately bring Paul to Rome. And it's a rough road to get there if you read a couple chapters ahead, which Tony's going to lay out for us eventually. He gets to Rome, and Paul does testify. He witnesses about Jesus, the facts about Jesus. He would go on to write letters to different churches, many of which are here in our Bibles, Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Titus, and ultimately 1st and 2nd Timothy. That's a lot of our Bible. And he wrote those after this story. He could have been snuffed out, but he wasn't because God had work for him to do. Think of all the wonderful truths in those letters. Think of all the ways in which these churches that he was writing to and the individuals he was writing to were blessed and built up by Paul's words. All of which he wrote after these events. And yet, that word testify or witness in Greek is the root of our modern word for martyr. A martyr is a witness. Paul lived to testify, and he died to do the same. And he was willing to die for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the sake of those who would believe in Jesus as a result. Those 40 Jews were willing to die to see death come to Paul. Paul was willing to die to see life come to those who were dead. Very different MOs. And yet in his life and in his death, Paul was again just testifying. He was just mirroring the life of Jesus. His life and death revealed the beauty and glory of the living Jesus and the worth that he has. He's of so amazing worth that he's worth dying for. For Jesus... Jesus lived to testify to the gospel of the kingdom that, was, that he was bringing life to the world through self-giving love. And throughout the life of Jesus, it's the same rhythm. Proclamation of the gospel, opposition, spread of the gospel. Religious hostility, political powers, socially insignificant people, to bring about his purposes. Ultimately, God used the single most unjust act to bring about his good work. His good work that would ultimately be carried to us through the apostle Paul's ministry and the good work that he is doing in us right now to make us like him, to bring his gospel through us to the nations. We are not the author of our story. The Lord is our author every moment in his hands. What is the work that he's doing in you right now? 
What is the good work he has done in you in the past? Maybe through painful circumstances. Maybe he's used insignificant people like Paul's nephew to bring about wonderful things in your life. What are the circumstances you see right now, whether in your own life, someone else's life, or in the world that bring you the most anxiety, despair, frustration? Is not the Lord the author of our story and the story of the world? All these things are in his hands. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. As members of his kingdom, we know that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Paul wrote that in Rome to the church in Philippi. God has been at work in you. He is at work now. Even as you might see, I can't see him working. David, don't you see my circumstances? How could he possibly be working? He is working. He was working in Paul's ministry here. 40 Jews coming to kill him. He was at work then. He was at work in Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, he can be at work now. And he will continue to work to bring about his good purposes in your life. Thus, in him, we can have confidence as we go ahead. And we can have gratitude as we look behind. Even in the face of of difficult things. For God is faithful and the living Jesus lives to stand by us, by his people that our lives might witness to him. So we are going to enjoy the living Jesus together as we take communion. And so I would invite the worship team back up We're going to turn to his table. This is his table. I know we don't have a table here. And yet, we are going to enjoy uh, his body and his blood and recall and consider the Lord's power to save. He proves that he's not only the author of history, but that he's able to redeem us, for he has written himself into the story in Jesus Christ. To live, to die in our place for our sin. And to rise. He can triumph over death. And use it for his glory. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in you. In us. He's even now shaping us in love. Molding us into his likeness. So let's consider him this morning as we turn to the table.